Thanks for listening to this Word in Your Ear podcast. If you'd like to get early access to all our productions ad-free, priority booking for our live events, and to take part in our weekly quiz, go to patreon.com slash wordinyourear for more details. Getting engaged is a moment worth cherishing. A one-of-a-kind ring that you design at Blue Nile can help your love sparkle. Just choose your diamond and setting. When you've found the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Finding the right engagement ring can be nerve-wracking. At Blue Nile, you'll have the expert guidance needed and a diamond guarantee that ensures you're getting the highest quality at the best price. Cherish all of life's moments and save up to 30% at BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot. We charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. You're listening to a podcast from The Word. Uh, well, nice to see you all here, and welcome uh, to this very special Word in Your Ear. And um, we're delighted to be dealing with um, a legendary figure, a great Londoner, a great fashion icon, Dylan Jones. <laughs> I thought that was going to go for quite a while. I yes. could see that a mile off. I know, you could. I realised I got a very bad start on that, but I'm not going to ask for a rerun. <laughs> but it, it's lovely to have Dylan here again. Uh, Dylan, who's been on the podcast in the past. Uh, talking my about third time. The third time, there you go. Talk, talking about your, your, your book about Live Aid uh, a couple of years ago. And uh, I can't remember what the last time we were talking about. I think I was just making up numbers. Okay, you are making up numbers. But this time you're definitely not making up numbers. Because uh, Dylan's recently published this monumental work, David Bowie, A Life, which we're going to talk about uh, this evening. So, Dylan, for those who haven't seen it or haven't read it so far, and the the opportunity is obviously to to buy a copy later on and get it signed by Dylan, what's what's the basic shape of the book? The shape of the book is it's an oral biography. Um, There are 150... There are 180 voices in it all, all together, um, um, 150 of which are new. Um, uh, the other 30 are people who were either dead or it was impossible to get hold of. Um, it's an oral biography, and I mean, there are lots of Bowie books, and some of them are very good. Some of them are awful, but some of them are very, very good. But they're all about the career. Um, which I think if you're a Bowie aficionado, you know about the career. And I wanted to write a book generally about, about him, about the man and about people with, who had genuine relations, genuine, genuine relationships with him. So it's, it's a very objective book. Um, there's almost... I mean, I, I have linking passages and I sort of, you know, I put myself into the book occasionally. But you're trying to build up a picture, a genuine picture of someone. I think if you speak to 150 people, 
that starts to develop. And how do you start doing that? Presumably you have to get a core of people who will make the book credible if you have... Uh, there are certain people you absolutely have to include, and then there's uh, wider circles beyond there, that. Would that be right? I, I figured that there are the 50 people you need to speak to in order to be taken seriously as a Bowie biographer. Then there are the 50 people who have as, as much right to talk about their relationship with David Bowie, who, who perhaps don't get asked as often, like photographers, film directors, film producers, hairdressers, makeup artists, lovers, etc., etc. Um, and then there are the other 50 people, when you're interviewing someone, and they say, well, have you spoken to Kevin? You go, well, who the hell's Kevin? So you endeavour to find and interview Kevin. So there, there are lots of Kevins in this book. <laughs> Who's the lots. person you're, you're, most, you're most pleased with having got hold of? Um... Well, two of the most interesting people aren't actually in the book. Um, there's a woman called Claire Shenston, who, was, uh, who had a very long uh, relationship with Bowie for quite some time, who is responsible for Heroes because it's her dream about the dolphins that is basically the, the text of the song. Um, she's quite frail now and quite ill, but I interviewed her at length and I, I sent her what... I'd, I'd written um, and in the end she decided that her, her relationship was too important for her to be joined in with a chorus of other voices which is, uh, which is fine I completely respected that and the other person was Tony DeFries which, which maybe we can talk about right later. right right but what was it about Bowie this is a labour of love I mean it's a brick like fantastic 500 page book and it must be very readable but very very readable it's I'm not like I'm, I'm not very readable absolutely very fantastic. readable yeah but what was it about Bowie that, for you personally, made you want to undertake that task? I mean, it's a generational thing, because I was one of those um, uh, highly um, susceptible teenagers who saw Top of the Pops in 1972, and he's, he's my generation. He's, he's, he's our generation's Bob Dylan, and I think... Um, uh, I think you, you just you have to look at the... Remember all those newspaper covers the day after he died? Apart from, I think, the mail, obviously... Um, you know, they all use Brian Duffy's lightning bolt, and the custodians of the media at, at the moment are people who grew, who, who people who grew up with David Bowie. Yeah. And actually, I don't think it's going to. You know, you're going to have Bob Dylan, you're going to have Mick Jagger, and then Paul McCartney. And after that, I don't think there's anyone else. I mean, I do very much subscribe to your school of thought, which is the narrative arc of, of rock music is reaching its end and that sort of that Bowie for me is is probably the most important person in the in the sort of second half of of that period all right so look let's let's talk about some of the some of the people that you, you've talked to who are featured in this book and uh, played a very important part in David Bowie's life and this rather blurry old school snap shows well, take us through this. Well, I, this is um, um, uh, George Underwood on the right. But um, originally for the cover of the book, uh, I mean, you look at Instagram now and the iconography of the lightning bolt or the Ziggy years, done to death, done to death. I mean, amazing. But I wanted, originally I wanted a picture of him as a child just after he's been punched by George Underwood and you see the eyes. Because even as a, as, as a boy... As a teenager, you can tell it's David Bowie, but the um, the guys at Penguin were a little bit... They just thought this was too too much. So I deliberately chose a picture where he doesn't look particularly fashionable. You're not immediately sure where or when it was taken. 
and he looks like a real person rather than a rock star. So, um, but, the, but the point of this is to explain that I had to approach a lot of these people, including George and Jeff McCormack and his other close friends, about a month after he died. So that first approach is really important because you don't want to come across as an ambulance chaser. Um, you hope that some of your creds go before you, but you've basically got to say that I'm coming from a good place, that this is coming from a place of love, that it's your, this is your testimony. Um, and that's, that's quite difficult. To con- yeah, some people are like fine, um, but others you have to do a little bit of coaxing. And um, uh, I mean, the other thing is you become quite cynical quite quickly. You start, you do 150 interviews, and you're, um, you, you all know this much better than me. You're, but you're sitting down. Someone starts to talk, and you go, "You're 300 words." Absolutely. <laughs> no, you're thinking I've got to I mean, transcribe this. I mean, if, <laughs> please. I mean, if you're talking to um, Julian Temple or Martin Scorsese or someone like that, you, you can, they, they can talk Those forever. Yeah. Was it a Tuesday? Was it a Wednesday? You know, it's not like that, that yeah. doesn't matter. It's fine, but some yeah. people they're 300 words. Yeah. Yeah, but George. So, so Temple was a, such yeah, an interesting character. I mean, he was in the. They were in a group called George and the Dragons. I think was it the King Bees. They were in together. Yeah, they and, were and the... what did you learn? I mean, he he runs through the whole book and remained a friend of Bowie's right up till the very very end. So what did you what did you learn about Bowie from George Underwood? That, he, he, I mean, he said to George at one point. He said. Um, I mean, there is a history. We talk about Mary Finnegan later, and there's a history of him sort of turning people on and off. Um, but there were a couple of people that he was friends with throughout his entire life. One was Jeff and one, one was uh, George. Um, and at one point he said to George Underwood, I think this was about 74, 75, he said, I'm going to go off now and I'm going to have this terrific adventure. And we might not see each other for 10 years, but we'll always be friends. And they were. And if, I think he, he had, I mean, you were talking about this earlier, he had the ability to decide he wanted to do things. It's like, let's dance. I want to make a, I want to make a really commercial record. And you go back to the early 70s. And I'm, I think he said to himself, you know what? I'm going to become a really good drug addict for a couple of years. I'm going to take a lot of coke. He made a great success of and that. And I'm going to be the best <laughs> drug addict there ever is. You know, there ever was. And he was, and he came he out of it. hard at it. He didn't die. Yeah. Yeah. Just, I'm now, because I'm... I'm old enough to have forgotten loads of great rock and roll stories remind me, and for the benefit of the odd benighted soul in, in the house who may not know what George Underwood did to David Bowie I, th- well, I, I actually think, I mean everyone in this room is going to know but, but they it, may not but George Underwood is responsible they had a fight over a girl he punched him, consequently the eyes you know, one of, one of the three or four most iconic things about Bowie um, which meant he was um, colorblind, and he looked, you know, when he finally arrived in 1972, looked even odder than he than he than he, than he would have done with the pan stick and the and the orange hair and the funny clothes and the codpiece. So he was colorblind. So does yeah. that what does that tell you about the funny clothes? I mean, was he was he unable to see the the, the, we, the we colors that we can see? Did he know his hair was orange? Did he? Have... <laughs> Talk about speaking ill of the dead. <laughs> He'd be the first one to laugh. Yeah. Um, 
I mean, we've got... Where, where is the, the, the Beau Brummel slide? Have you oh, got okay. that? I'll, I'll whip um, through. Go on, I'll whip through. We're, we're going to take this out, out of order. It doesn't matter. Okay. The Beau Brummel... I mean, you talk about fashion. And the thing is, there's this, people think that David Bowie is a fashion icon, that he was a dandy. He wasn't. He just... He, he understood the power of clothes in terms of costume... But he under, uh, understood the power of clothes in the way that he understood the power of choreography or, or great lighting or theatre design, um, d- drama. Um, and he became very, very good at it. Um, once he'd been sort of educated by Angie, he became incredibly good at it. And also he had, you know, one of his greatest traits, I think, being um, the word I can never properly put, an, an autodidact. All right. You know, he had this huge curiosity, which was based in insecurity, because he didn't have a very good education, but constant curiosity of when he's being made up, he's talking to the makeup artist about which clubs do you go to, what do you read, what, what's the perfume you've got. So he knew about fashion and he cared about fashion, but uh, whenever you saw him off duty, and I saw him off duty quite a few times. He looks, you know, like he'd come to fix the fridge. It's like he just, <laughs> he put a, you know, had a polo shirt on and, yeah. and, and chinos. But when he decided that he was going to use fashion, he used it better than anyone else. Right, right, right. So let's, let's just... There's no sound of disbelief in your voice, David. No, no, I, 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 no, I entirely be, I believe you. And I'm, I'm particularly, I'm interested in the, the autodidact thing because... Uh, has that in common with so many um, major rock figures who've never finished their education? John Lennon, Paul McCartney, yeah. Bob Dylan, Bruce Springsteen. Self-educated. And they kind of spent the rest yeah. of their lives catching, yeah, catching and, up, yeah. didn't they? And, and actually, in public. he was smart enough to use what he learnt in, a, in an artistic way to interpret it, and actually often in a quite gauche way, uh, and make real art out of it because he had an amazing ability to harness his own talents using other people's influences. All right. Let's... There's a bit where... Uh, oh, this is the, the Beckenham, uh, Beckenham Arts Lab. This is a really fascinating moment because up until this point, reading the book, you get the impression that he's just a bit behind the beat, which is understandable because he's a teenager and mod comes along and he forms a mod band and R&B comes along and he forms an R&B band and he doesn't know whether he wants to be Jack Brell or um, Bob Dylan or, or James Brown or whatever. And suddenly he forms this arts lab in the back room of a pub in Beckenham and at that point seems to be moving into the future, doing things that are way ahead of what's well, going on. Even then, I think... I mean, you're, you're so right. And it's... Isn't it... Isn't it extra- I mean, he spent ten years... Slightly behind the curve. Yeah. With the wrong clothes. Yeah. Just slightly off. Ten years where he's relentlessly trying to be successful. Um, and he's a mod, and he's R&B, and he's a, he's a folk duo, and he does That's mime, right. and he's a children's entertainer, and he, he does all these things. Simon and Garfunkel something. None so, of them yeah. worked. Yeah. But this, this was a period... In fact, this didn't... I mean, this was... But it was the time of space oddity, wasn't it? Yeah, but, which was a novelty after. hit, and it was yeah. uh, uh, for years, for three years afterwards, he was a hit wonder. But I yeah. think Mary Finnegan might be in this picture. I think it's, that she may be the top right there. In um, anyway. But that's, I mean, Mary Finnegan was fascinating. She was a lovely person to talk to. Um, she was his lover and then landlady. In fact, no, landlady and then lover, I think, became a lover because she was his landlady. He was fantastically good at meeting girls and getting them to look after him. Wasn't oh, he? yes. Astonishing. The best kind of rock star. Yeah, absolutely. Um, but her, her story 
If I heard one person, I mean, she said it, but then this was replicated 30, maybe more times throughout the book, the people I spoke to. He had this amazing ability to turn people off. So he was, had a relationship with Mary Finnegan. They created the Beckenham Arts Centre together, this back room in a pub. They did the free festival. They were quite close for a certain amount of time, 18 months or something. And then he goes off and he's really famous. And then she, he invites her to the, the Earl's Court Ziggy Stardust gig spring of 1973 I think is that right? I think it is um, and she goes to the gig very very nice concert, there's a party afterwards she goes to the party and then um, the party's winding down and she describes Bowie going up to her, taking her by the hand leading her to the door opening the door, giving her a kiss and saying, Mary Finnegan it's been fantastic knowing you and closing the door and, and literally and metaphorically, just that's the end of their relationship. <laughs> and that, I mean, it sort of happened, and I'm, you know, and we all know Rockstar for a little bit, and you, you sort of, that's replicated like at least 30 times in the book. But the fascinating thing, I think, is that no one feels aggrieved. No, not at all. Because it's thrilled to have met him. It's thrilled to have met yeah. him, worked with him, yeah. known him. Um, loved him. What, no one, almost no one feels aggrieved. Not everybody, but you know, it's no, yeah, fascinating it's way of of homing in on people and then and then having a very intense relationship for a short time and then dropping them like a hot brick, yeah, like a hot brick. Like Bob Harris is. Who had yes, a, I didn't really know that Bob Harris. Uh, Bob was. introduced really the Ziggy Stardust tour, That's didn't right. he? Which yeah. is ex- most extraordinary. Yeah. Juxtaposition. He was he was dropped. Like the same way that John Peel was dropped by Mark Boland. By Mark Boland, precisely. Yeah. Exactly the same. <laughs> Suddenly their, their usefulness had evaporated and it moved on. But whereas Mark Boland made loads of enemies, David Bowie didn't really make any. Well, that's the thing. I mean, he didn't really make enemies. And when I was uh, drawing up a list of who I needed to speak to for the book, I mean, I wasn't... You want drama, and it's not a hagiography by any stretch of the imagination, but I wasn't looking for people who had difficult relationships with him. But you'd be hard-pressed to find people who, who had real issues. I mean, some people. I mean, Elton's not a great fan of... of, of but, I mean... Yeah. Yeah. He yeah. comes... That's, that's the other thing, is that I think often, if you work on a book, or you're researching someone for a long time, even for an article, long article, that often you can end up, after the process, and you like that person a little less than you did beforehand... Certain happened, it certainly happened to me. I did a book on Jim Morrison once, and you sort of, at the end of the book, you go, hmm. And, um, uh, Dude, I wouldn't read this. That's right. <laughs> but with Bowie, and I started, I mean, I've, I've been a fan all my life, and I actually liked him after this process more than I had done when I started, because I think he was a fundamentally decent person. But I think you understand also that, that he's so driven to be that successful. You have to be incredibly you know, self-interested and driven. And there's a bit very early on where he's, he's a teenager, about 14 or 15, and he sends a cassette of his music to Paul McCartney. And then he rings up a potential manager, a prospective manager, and says, Brian Epstein's got the Beatles, you need us. You know, it's that kind of incredible confidence. That but he's that, was, that was a combination of a few things, because he was brought up in Brixton during a period when a lot of Brixton... It was a, you remember the old entertainer Winifred Atwell? Oh, yeah, yeah. And she yeah, bought row of houses, and yeah, she bought a lot of property in Brixton for investment purposes. And a lot of people in the light entertainment industry lived in Brixton. 
Dickie Henderson, um, John Major's father, the circus entertainer, etc., etc., etc. And his father was obviously, as most people know, a, a PR for Bernardo's. So he came into contact with a lot of sort of B and C list celebrities anyway. So he grew up thinking that having an ambition to be an entertainer was no different to be, having an ambition to be a lawyer or a, a doctor. Um, so I'm going to be a singer. I'm going to be an entertainer. Big deal. Uh, do, before we move on, I just want to ask you a further question about uh, Mary... Is it Finnegan? Sorry. Um, not about her in particular, but, but just generally speaking, I always feel rather sorry for, for normal people who are swept up in, in stars' lives, that they're, they're kind of only of interest to, to anybody because of what they can tell you about the star. You know? How do you find a person like that deals with it? Well, there are, uh, there are, there's a sort of group of people. There are the people who have the one story who have the one anecdote, they're usually the 300-word people. Um, There are the people who over-embellish their relationships. And there are some people who are so-called Bowie experts and who always put their hand up when there's a, 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 a media opportunity who perhaps didn't or weren't as liked by Bowie as... Uh, I'm not going to mention any names, but there are a few of those. Um, but as, as I said earlier, I think most people are just pleased to be in, in the orbit, to have the sort of halo effect of knowing David Bowie for a brief period of time. Right. Or indeed a long period of time. OK, OK. So I, I, I wanted to talk about the two, like, the two of the key women in his life and his, and his family background, which you alluded to a little bit there. You know, his father was a PR for Bernardo's. Yeah. But his mother, he had a very difficult relationship with... The, this is on his wedding day, where his mother shows up uninvited, is that right? She, she gate-crashed, yeah. He had... He had um, That's not a it's normal It's not a good family. sign, is it? It's is not a good sign when your mother gate-crashes your, mother you gate your wedding. <laughs> Life is... Why was there so much friction? Because he adored his dad, didn't he? He had a very close relationship yeah. with his father. Um, his mother was quite cold, I think. I spoke to lots of people who knew her, and um, she was she was she was a very cold person by all accounts. Yeah, he had a, he he'd, um, in fact there was one story uh, again a story that most people know is when she called up the NME in the mid seventies, oh, yeah. and um, uh, and and Charles Shamari picked up the phone and it was <laughs> hello NME or whatever he would say you know <laughs> he would Cri- say that crime desk you know <laughs> yeah. and it was it was David Bowie's mother and she wanted someone to interview her because she was seriously pissed off that he he, did, he never spoke to her and, and, and never and then he spoke to Nick Logan and said what do you think and Nick said oh, go around and interview her and then and ended up with a half page piece in the enemy about about the fact that David's mother but that's uh, a strange way to send messages to your son isn't it it worked <laughs> you, could, you could just ring him up it know, worked you know, it worked yeah it, 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 it really worked, worked. got a reaction yeah. that's true yeah. now the other f- figure in the family is is his brother Terry. Yeah. So what's, you know, having talked to loads of people who are involved around this, what's your... There are, there are sort of swirls of um, uh, misinformation and fake news, largely based on the Gilman book of 1986 called Alias, uh, where he interviews one of the aunts um, who basically conjures up this, this background of madness and schizophrenia. I mean, his, 
his, his half-brother was schizophrenic and eventually killed himself and had a very troubled life. And they had a much closer relationship, I discovered, than, than, than I thought. But the rest of the family um, had issues and you know, bad things happened to them, but, but they weren't mad. And I, I, the, the, the additional problem is that, like the way that he slightly amplified his bisexuality... I think he slightly amplified the <laughs> bit crazy um, yeah. nature of uh, the the um, the bad genes in his family yeah. around the time of Man Who Fell to Earth. But it made interesting Ziggy. art, didn't it? I mean, well, he it always used really to say material. he always used to say print the myth. Yeah, yeah, print the myth because yeah. it's more interesting. Do you think Angie Bowie? Just a point, and this is because to quite a lot of people in the book. Actually, do you think she doesn't get the credit for what she did for him? Absolutely. I mean, I mean she did. She was really important in advising him to fundamental. She, not not just in 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 creating Ziggy, uh, or at least compiling the elements, but also teaching him that that he could he 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 could keep doing that by taking a bit of this and a bit of that and, and building up this 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 a new jigsaw every time but I, I wrote a book about Bowie about five or six years ago um, about the Top of the Pops performance and uh, macro micro book about what that meant to the 70s blah 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 and I wanted to speak to Angie and uh, she wanted money and it wasn't a very big advance um, I didn't need Angie for the book so I, I didn't um, interview her but for this book I absolutely needed Angie so I paid her she's the only person in the book I paid she's the only person you paid yeah but she was brilliant, very generous with her time and anecdotes. Not, um, she wasn't, you know, she's been interviewed many times, but she wasn't using this as a way to get back at him. Um, you know, she's made some difficult and, and some odd career choices, but she was, uh, she was tremendous. And um, I think she does get a very bad press, actually, very bad press, because, as you say, she was, she was core to the to the creation and success of Ziggy Stardust. So she was the person who encouraged him to be adventurous at a point when he wasn't quite clear. Yeah, about have this haircut, these boots, that dress, these that sequins, dress, the dress, all of this. Yeah, stuff. She, yeah. 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 Which yeah. Was a, yeah was I mean, she bought the dress. Yeah, yeah. she said, "You all look good in this dress." And she encouraged him to go to the, to, to to talk about his bisexuality, didn't he? Yeah, didn't you? And again, that was, I think, something that was slightly amplified. Yeah, yeah so talk about that a bit. So, you know, the, the, this whole... This is, he, he got an enormous amount of press, This isn't he? This isn't the cover. Um, no. But it was in The Melody Maker, and it was by Michael Watts, as, as most of us know, and that was the, the interview in which he claims um, that, uh, that he is bisexual. Um, and, but regardless... Regardless of how true it was, and I think it was a little bit true, um, you talked to so many people from that generation and who felt... Because he didn't just inspire people to create pop groups and be artists and what have you. He encouraged people to actually be slightly more honest or less guilty about their sexuality. That's very powerful, particularly in the 70s, particularly with teenagers. And I know lots of people of my generation who, it's, it's a cliche to say, but they think, well, David Bowie says he's gay and then maybe it's okay for me to say well, that it, I'm gay. It was also That's at, powerful. At That's really time, powerful. It was, Bob he, Dylan didn't do he that. He was the first pop star who talked about anything like that. I don't remember anybody ever talking no. about him. Beatles never talked about anything intimate like that at all. No, I mean, it, 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 was, it was a generational thing, and he was being slightly expedient. But it, 
it was incredibly um, uplifting and um, refreshing and enlightening. And for some people, it was it was like having a door opened, I suppose. But you think it might have been exaggerated? Yeah, the I think bisexuality. He, I, I, I what think, does that mean? Well, I think he was a little bit. Well, he had. How a, are you? A he has an affair with Lindsay Kemp, doesn't How he? Are you a, a little bit bisexual? Yeah, well, he, bit he has relationships. I want to know. He has relationships with uh, um, Lindsay Kemp, with Lionel Bart. Um, there's a passage in the book about the three in a bed with Mick Jagger. I don't know what they did in bed, but they were in bed. Um, his money. But <laughs> well, there's a bit with Simon Napier Bell. Simon so, Napier Bell, who managed the Yardbirds and Mark Bowen, he's offered the chance to manage Bowie. And this part of the package is you get to sleep with the yeah, artist. He was, I mean, absolutely astonishing. But well, he was, he was. I think he was, he was, he was, he was, he was very confident in his sexuality. He was very well endowed, and obviously his expediency. <laughs> Um, um, uh, allow. I mean, you know, it, his expediency manifested itself in his ability to perhaps sleep with people for uh, for ulterior motives. Do you know we've done loads of these podcasts and we've never talked about anybody's dick. No, we haven't. No. <laughs> I feel it's a it's a. No, it's it's a there is, there I think is, we're going to make this a regular question. From there now is, there on, is a whole. Yeah. Um, it's the Jim Care. I mean, the book isn't that tawdry, but there is a. <laughs> I, I speak, oh, it is in bits. I speak to people who uh, uh, um, were involving uh, were involved in labyrinth, um, and there's <laughs> someone describing how they had to film because he's, he's you know he's with these sort of stupid little puppets. And, of course, everything is done at waist height. And, of course, all you can see is this massive cock. <laughs> massive cock little puppet. Weird. Yeah. Oh, that's bad. Weird. That's the title. Good title for a book, actually. It's very good. Title of the podcast. Just massive you ask cock one... little puppet. Yeah, just right. a... One quick thing about that is control of the press. He's incredibly good at manipulating the press, wasn't he? He developed these kind of, um, you know, particular friends and particular titles. And we then ring them up and see how they were and to develop friendships. Tony Parsons, he would ring up and talk about the problems of being a single dad. But it worked. How oh, many times you've, you've interviewed many more pop stars than I have and you want content, you want material. Yeah. I, I remember years ago going, when I worked at the Sunday Times I went to um, interview Quinnith Paltrow because she was filming uh, she was making Shakespeare in Love at Pinewood or Shepparton or somewhere. S- simple enough endeavour, just go down there, interview her get an interview, come back, she's on the cover of the Sunday, Sunday Times magazine. Not complicated. Anyway, she had no interest in talking to me. I mean, what a cow. <laughs> literally. She sat like, like this, monosyllabic, and after 25 minutes, I'm ushered out, and I've literally got nothing. nothing. So I didn't set out with doing this, this kind of piece, but I basically went round the entire set asking anyone and everyone the same question, what's she like? And everybody went, eh. Yeah. Is she a cow? Yes. <laughs> That's right. No, I didn't say that. I was not leading the witness. Um, uh, but it's not difficult to charm people. Bowie was brilliant because he knew that he that you wanted to walk away feeling like you know, like you've yeah. been to see a cowboy film, and you walk out, and you're sort of you want to have a great meeting. And even though you knew you were sort of being manipulated, you didn't mind because it was so entertaining. And he would look at you and think, "I know what you're like, Markel, and you like this, so I'm going to talk about the things that you like and ask you lots of he questions." He would have talked about the incredible string band here. <laughs> he would have done. 
Yeah, he would have done it research. Yeah, he did. He'd have got you straight away. Absolutely. <laughs> That's all right. Okay. So th- this is we, we've we, you touched upon this you, the, your earlier book. Um, you know, this is the key moment. Uh, when Tracy Evans. Talk about 1972. I mean, I uh, there are five people who talk about it. Isn't it? Tracy Evans and Neil Tennant and, and uh, Gary Nick Kemp, Rhodes. Nick Rhodes. Gary Kemp. They're all in the book talking about this particular moment. What was your recollection? Of it? Well, it's well. I, that for me, that frame, that's the one that that's, that that's the one that people reference at the end of the book when I interview people who knew him very well about what it was, you know, where they were when they heard he was dead, and the that's the that's the that's the important point about David Bowie, that image, because we, you know, at that time, Top of the Pops watched by twenty um, twelve and a half million people, twenty five percent of the population. Huge, like Steptoe and Sino. It's like porridge. It's like everybody saw yeah. it. But all of us thought, he's talking to me. Yeah. That's the connection. That's the thing that you didn't have with the Beatles or the Stones or maybe you had it with Bob Dylan. I don't know. That's not really my, my, my thing. But he's talking to me. He's not talking to you. He's not talking to anyone here. He's talking to me. And we all feel that. And that's incredibly important. Um, but if you go to the next one, which is, that's my parents. Um, taken when they were very glamorous and they just got married and they were both she was smoking heavily she was yeah Yeah. she was a nurse he was in the RAF Um, but the last significant time or the last time I saw my father before he died um, the last uh, and we had he had a conversation uh, about he asked me what I was up to and I told him I was writing this book about a performance on top of the pops and he gave me a funny look and uh, I described the music and the emotion and the fantastic colours and the, the great costumes and the kaleidoscopic nature of this whole thing and he let me bang on for ages and ages and then he said you do realise you had a black and white television don't you <laughs> um, it's a true story and so a lot of but that is sort of, of re- received it's just, exactly you, yeah. you just, just um, you project on you what pile it on. Yeah. on exactly. Well, TV was only just going from black and white to colour, yeah. wasn't it, at that point? Yeah, I think yeah. so. Yeah. Lots of things were, were, were still still in black and white, regardless of which telly you had. I, I wanted to talk about this picture, not just because it's on the cover of my best-selling book, Dylan. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> that's, an, that's outrageous. Outrageous plug there. Really outrageous. Um, and this is David Bowie arriving backstage at Hammersmith in, what, 1973... For, to play what was the last Ziggy Stardust show. And uh, it's extraordinary because he's already behaving on a kind of massive scale, isn't he? He's behaving as if he's an absolute superstar. Well, whereas, this, is, this is... Whereas this, he wasn't really, was he? No, but he... he uh, a lot of this was down to Tony DeFries, his manager at the time, um, basically saying, you act like a star. Uh, and the the, the 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 one brilliant thing I think it's a you know piece of my new shy, but him telling David Bowie never open a door, do not touch a door handle, let let someone else do that. And Just, someone you from are this someone. Moment he never has to. Doors yeah. are all open for him. Yeah, you, yeah. So, let someone open the door for you. You, Mark Ellen, are a star. Yeah. Never touch a doorknob. <laughs> I thought that was brilliant. And you act like a star. And you're, a, yeah, and you, well, he, he, he was actually like a bigger star than he was because he wasn't really, but he was, he assumed the mantle of 
uh, a legend. Because he'd, he'd been doing, he'd been doing this, uh, he'd been touring America, and then he came back. He did Earl's Court, and it wasn't a huge success, was it? Because he kind of he'd overestimated his pulling power. Yeah, I spoke to a lot of people who went to that <laughs> concert, and it was um, it was by all accounts it, it, was, out, it? it was a disaster. Yeah. yeah. It was it was it was hubris. Yeah, this picture. And I don't think about it. He's on his way to play the last Ziggy Stardust concert. And I think in that afternoon he'd rung the NME. Is that right? And told them that he was going to he, he rang retire. Charlie, he rang he rang Charlie Murray. And they printed this before he'd actually made the announcement on stage. Yeah, he rang he rang Charlie Murray at the NME and said, um, "Yeah, I'm going to knock it on the head." Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Charlie tells a very it's in you know in in the vernacular and he said yeah um, and he knew when the enemy went to press and it went to press on a Tuesday yes um, because this is the analog world isn't it I was Fantastic. in uh, as a rube living in the home county if you got it on a Thursday and I remember one of the most amazing things when I moved to London in 1977 finding out you get the enemy on a Wednesday, Wednesday afternoon Wednesday yeah. lunchtime yeah. Oxford it's Circus com- completely changed my life oh yeah, yeah. absolutely um, but he knew... find loads of rock stars down <laughs> at Roxford <laughs> waiting for it to arrive but, it was but he knew when it was published so he said that um, yeah I'm not going to knock it on the head tonight last gig haven't told the band um, but, and, and here's the story and so the enemy presses were printing before he announced on the stage that this was the final Ziggy Stardust concert. I mean, that's cold. It is, it's that's really cold. cold. It is cold. It's extraordinary. So we talked a little bit about Bo Brummel. And, and um, you've got a, there's a story in the, in the book about... These are obviously a load of his on stage wear. But I think you've got a story in, the, in there from... A, is it the art director of Arena? I was very interested Robin, in Robin, yeah, Robin Derrick, yeah. Go on, tell us what happens. Oh, this was when I don't know whether it was shoot, he was shooting the clothes for Arena or the Sunday or, or, or for Vogue. I think it was when he was doing for Vogue where he went after Arena. And uh, the idea was the conceit was that Kate Moss was going to wear lots of Bowie costumes. And so um, um, Robin went over to the, the archives, which were then in Switzerland, um, got all this stuff. Coco was there choosing things, brought it back to London. Kate Moss comes into studio, dries on clothes, takes pictures, bish, bash, bosh. That's the idea, right? Good idea. Um, but she couldn't get into them. You know, Kate Moss, that thin. David Bowie, thinner. Well, the, the, so they had to ring up. They had to ring up David Bowie and ask permission to let out the clothes in order for Kate Moss to. I mean, he must have had a 26, 25 weighed, inch waist. He weighed 95 pounds. Various people mention that in the book, which is unbelievably little, isn't it? Yeah, it's extraordinary. Skinny and small. And at one stage was living on kind of just one raw egg a day and, and uh, 40 gitane. And a big pile of cocaine. That's a good diet. Yeah, very good um, diet. Yeah. Switzerland. There's a, Hanif Qureshi told me a nice story about Switzerland because when Bowie, which was where all the archives were stored for a while, Bowie moved to Switzerland at the end of the 70s to escape tax and drug dealers. And um, he lived in this huge... He lived in a variety of houses, but I think the first one was just outside Geneva. He knew nobody. He literally didn't know anyone at all. Um, and I think he's there for a couple of weeks, and then 5.30, there's a, a knock on, on the back door, the kitchen door. And it, and it was Roger Moore. <laughs> it's Hello, like, David. It, <laughs> it's like Stella Street. Who's going to do Roger Moore? He did. Hello, David. Um, Roger Moore comes in, has a cup of tea, uh, stays for a drink, tells lots of really entertaining stories about the James Bond films, 
he stays for dinner. They have a fantastic time. Brilliant. Next day, 5.30. Hello, David. <laughs> Hello, David. It's Roger Moore again. Roger Moore comes in, Roger, has yeah. a drink, tells the same stories, which are yeah. slightly less interesting the second time around. Yeah. And so he said that after about t- two weeks, every day at 5.25, David Bowie could be found underneath the kitchen table with all the lightness off, pretending not to be in <laughs> Just, just in case Roger Moore came around. I love that story. That's brilliant. Rick Wakeman lived there too, on the same mountain in Montreux. But Robin, Robin makes the point that... Um, I, mean, I know these are obviously you know, very extreme examples, the ones on this picture here, but, but every, all, all Bowie's old clothes, they were clearly stage costumes, weren't they? They, were, they had tape in the back of them. and you know, They were like theatrical... They were wardrobe, weren't they? They weren't clothes. They weren't normal clothes. Well, that's what I go back to what I was saying earlier. It was costume. But they were all kept. Yeah. And they were all kept because he he kept everything. I mean, that was... Had he kept everything way back? Well, that's the thing. One of the most extraordinary things about the David Bowie is... um, Exhibition, one of the greatest exhib- you know, exhibitions there's there's ever going to be. There's one in the V&A. Yeah. Um, a, he'd kept everything, because a lot of that stuff came from his archives. In fact, the only thing they didn't bring over from New York was the white saxophone, because it was too fragile, and um, that, that he didn't want that to happen. Um, so the one they use in the show is a, is a fake of some description. Um, but there's nothing about David Jones... It's all about David Bowie. There's right. nothing pre-David Bowie. Right. It's all about... There's no personal mementos. Nothing. They're professional... It's all business. Strictly, all right. strictly business. Yeah, yeah. Interesting. So, um, this, I, is, this is interesting, because somebody in the book makes the point, I think it's Nick Kent, that, um, you know, he realised that the, the 60s was over, the Beatles had broken up, no one was listening to the records by the band anymore, and he wanted to deliberately attach himself to people who were moving forward and going into the future. And one of those was Iggy Pop, and the other one was Lou Reed. Would that be right, do you think? Was it as, as simple yeah, as that? And, as scientific as that? These are the people I need to learn from. Because he talks about copying Iggy Pop. So oh, what did he copy from him? Uh, well, his name. Um, yeah, true. <laughs> um, stage mannerisms, um, stage diving, yeah. walking on hands. Um... And they had a... I mean, there were lots of themes in the book of him looking for sort of old, you know, big brother people and little brother people. Uh, People he wanted to sort of co-opt and people he sort of looked up to. Uh, And I think Iggy represented both, actually. That's Tony DeFries in the background. Yes, I want to talk about... When they lived in... I can't remember who it is, but when they lived in Berlin together... Someone describes a bit like the young ones. <laughs> it's like David Bowie coming in for Who's had my cheese? <laughs> no, that's great. It's like Iggy Pop stole my cheese. Who's going to watch up? And Iggy up? Pop will come like, Who, Who's had my sausages? You've had my fucking sausages. <laughs> I, lo- I love that. It's brilliant. It's a brilliant image. There's something competitive about the way they, they spur each other on to, to more and more outrageous behaviour. In fact, there's another bit where you talk about when he goes on holiday with, with John Lennon to, to Hong Kong. Yeah, I mean, and that they was... drink snake's blood. The thing and, that surprised me about that is I, I always thought that, that, that apart from brief sojourns in Los Angeles, that John Lennon ne- never left um, Manhattan. But apparently he used to go on holiday all the time. And he talks about... 
he'd basically have a suitcase with a T-shirt in it and a passport and a load of cash, and he'd just go off places. And then when he needed a new T-shirt, he'd give a, a, the, the T-shirt to a very grateful fan, John Lennon's T-shirt, Slide buy a new it. one, and then yeah. carry on. But, uh, yeah, they did. He was, I think, even though John Lennon was a very different writer and, and a sort of um, very didactic, I think that he was the only... One of the few people that, he, that Bowie genuinely looked up to. Um, I mean, obviously, easy to look up to a Beatle, but he kind of knew everybody, but he had enormous affection for, for, for John Lennon. Mm. Enormous affection. Tell us about Tony DeFries. Well, Tony DeFries, who I don't... I've got an hour of interview with Tony DeFries. I don't quote because it was, it was off the record, but I talk about it. It took me ages to get to, to Tony DeFries, who obviously is a legendary figure who has ne- doesn't give interviews and doesn't talk about David Bowie. Um, I found him bizarrely through LinkedIn, which is something I'm sort of... It's useful for something. <laughs> Finding Tony DeFries. That's Finding ex, ex-managers of David Bowie. It, we, we, link, LinkedIn is something I don't often use, but um, I don't know why. I think I was clearing up some or looking for the... You know, they have these request things, and um, it suddenly occurred to me, why not? And I punched it in. And <laughs> after playing sort of LinkedIn and then email tag so, for a while... So, sorry, did Tony DeFries get a thing saying, Dylan Jones would like to connect with yeah. you on LinkedIn? That's hilarious. Yeah, yeah. that's how it works. And, um, and then we ended up um, uh, having this email correspondence, and then I spoke to him. I've still got, still got the tape. And I, he was incredibly proud. Again, not bitter... Um, and still was convinced that he had done the right thing, that he was a good guy, not a bad guy, etc., etc., etc. He was fascinating to. He, I think he lives in Johannesburg. Um, but at the end, he got very, he got very excited. He said, "Well, I could do something in the magazine. I could help you co-promote it, and I could." And I thought, "Hold on." Um, and he was trying to get getting more and more involved. And I thought, well, I'm going to I'm going to get the interview. And then he said his final email was um, this is he he was going to do all of this stuff, but it was going to cost me three hundred and sixty thousand pounds. There you go, there you go. To which I responded immediately: You either have a very keen sense of humour or a completely unrealistic idea of the <laughs> publishing industry. And that but, and that was it. But but the, his involvement with David Bowie, he kind of bankrolled, you know hunky-dory and so forth, didn't he? Because he didn't have a record deal at that point. You know, so he got on board with him when nobody really believed in him. Oh, he was as important as, as Angie was in the, in the uh, creation of, of Ziggy Stardust and, and propel, propelling him to, to stardom, absolutely. But in return, he took kind of he, Colonel he, Tom Parker. He took all his money. <laughs> and, and, yeah, I mean, he's and, like, it's the legend, it's the... It's the t- it's a typical story of of of, of rube rocks fledgling rock star signing a contract like like yeah. not looking at it yeah. and then and at one point has 150 people on the payrolls no oh, right God, yeah so he was just milking the, the money out of yeah but, what Bowie was know. earning so how how long did that last for how long was he paying Tony DeFries for till 1982 which is when he made um, Let's Dance when he started doing Let do you think dance. he was holding back? Of course Let's he was. Dance of course he was. Until the deal. Yeah, because every you know a a proportion, a percentage of everything he earned up until then was going to Tony DeFries. Right. So it was only after that was finished that he decided to make this incredibly commercial record. So what are the two albums before Let's Dance? I'm trying to think. Uh, Scary Monsters Scary and Monsters. Nodgers. Oh, well, 1980, well. I think. Yeah, it did well actually. Oh right. Well, there you yeah. must have participated in that. So. 
Um, you mentioned that you talked to um, two kind of early friends of David Bowie. Uh, one George Underwood and this is Jeff, Jeff McCormack. McCormack this yeah. is Jeff McCormack here tell us about Jeff McCormack well, they, were in the, they were in the Cub Scouts together weren't they is that right yeah they um, I he think he them... knew Jeff maybe I can't remember which came first George or Jeff but yeah from a very very young age and it, that's Warren Peace he was the backing singer for he, basically Bowie wanted a mate to come on his great adventures so he, was, he sang on the, the Diamond Dogs tour, the Young Americans tour, travelled all over the world with him. And um, the weird thing about Jeff, who's a lovely man, practically the same age as, as um, Bowie, at, sounds identical to him and looks like him. Not, in, not, not facially, but same body, same, same build. Um, it's quite unnerving, actually. In fact, the other person who really sounds like David Bowie is Alan Edwards, his, his long-term PR. In fact, Alan, when they were in Australia on tour for the Let's Dancing, Alan off, often used to do radio interviews as David Bowie. Oh. <laughs> Brilliant. True fact. That's great. True fact. <laughs> we were talking about Let's Dance earlier. Well, you mentioned it just now, that he, he unleashed this at the, uh, at the end of his, his deal with, uh, with um, Tony... To freeze, um, that was that was a kind of huge hit out of nowhere, wasn't it? I mean, that was that was also his last hit. Am I right in saying? No, it wasn't his last hit, but it was. Um, uh, he had lots of hits after that. Um, Blue Jean and stuff like that. Loving the Alien. I mean, lots of hits in the eighties. But Let's Dance was a huge hit. It was a massive hit, uh, and it was started as a folk song. It was he, he showed um, Nile Rogers a photograph of uh, uh, little Richard getting in or out of a red Corvette or a Cadillac. Make it sound like that. Make it sound like that. Um, but yeah, it was it was him attempting to and successfully making a very 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 popular record. And I don't know if you remember this, but lots of people, possibly even myself, for a bit, would go because he'd done something too commercial, sort of grumbling because even though he was a, an incredibly famous pop star still at the early 80s he was sort of like he thought he was ah oh, he was my david bowie he's not but isn't that david just the classic thing of being a, a fan you don't you don't want to share him with, with more people you know? of course you want people to be sort of gloriously unsuccessful yeah, bravely yeah. courageously but that, was, that was a huge <laughs> hit you know he did the kind of the saucy video for china girl didn't he and so forth, yeah yeah which was you know de rigueur in those days yeah. to get on mtv and so forth and um and uh, did did he regret Let's dance. He regretted it almost immediately. There's, a, there's something that, that, that Bono tells me in the book, that they're in Australia and they're, and they're in a bar drinking beer, playing pool. And um, David Bowie's really, really upset um, because this would have been, oh, I don't know, maybe 84, I think they're touring, 84. And he's basically crying into his beer, thinking, I've ruined my life, I've ruined my credibility. I've sold 11,000 albums, I've made an absolute hash of it. It's like, <laughs> yeah, and, 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 they're, and they're just on the cusp of success. Yeah. And they're thinking, what? Yeah. You're, a, you're David Bowie, and B, you've just had the, 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 the biggest success of your career. Um, but he was genuinely conflicted. He'd achieved something 
very special, very particular, and yet he was already questioning uh, the sort of status of what he just done. So was he aware of his own brand, and he felt it was possible to be too popular if you were David Bowie? Yeah, and actually, from that moment onwards, the insecurity sets in, and each successive reinvention is very self-conscious. And I think you can look... Everything up until Let's Dance is... It has a logic to it. Everything after Let's Dance has a, an element of insecurity about it, yeah. regardless of which direction he's going in. I'm going to be... I'm going to be a member of the world's worst rock group. Um, yeah. I'm going to try drum and bass. I'm going to wear a, a, a Union Jack jacket. I'm going to be... I mean, all of this stuff. I mean, it's some, it's some monstrously fantastic records as well, as well as some awful ones, but that's where the insecurity sets in. OK. Let's talk about his films. Did you go to see... Um, you went to see Prince's Purple Rain with Mick Jagger at one point. And I think Julian Temple and both Jagger and and, and Bowie they were, were both mostly envious, both furious that he'd managed to produce a great film. Yeah, um, so competitive. But actually, if uh, I mean Prince Purple Rain, one film, um, the Eminem film, Eight Mile, Eight was it Mile, called? Yeah. Madonna, Desperately Seeking Susan, David Bowie, Man of Fell to Earth, all films which sort of exaggerate to ex- a certain extent a version of their own personality. Um, Bowie, not a great actor. Uh, in fact, Jeremy Thomas, who produced um, Merry Christmas, Mr. Lawrence, says in, in the book that everything that he does in the book is according to his ability, how long he can talk for uh, without, uh, uh, um, you know, how, how much can he remember? What does he do with his face? It's, it's, he's very stoic in the film, which fits the character, but, but he couldn't act very well. But the thing is, he turned up, for him, it was like going on a holiday. He turned up and said, well, I'm not micromanaging this one. What do you want me to do? Literally, what would you like me to do? You're in charge. I'm the vehicle. D, 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 D. Um, this is from a Hunger, the terrible vampire. Which is where movie. you met him, was it? Yeah, I was. I was an extra on this film, and um, it was the, my scene. I think it was 1981 or 1982. I just left St Martin's, and my scene. I, I was a film extra. I also shoot down Roger Moore's plane in Oct- Octopussy. Yeah, you're welcome. Um, and it was my job to walk up and down the metal stairs in heaven, the, the gay nightclub underneath the arches in Charing Cross, brushing past Catherine Deneuve and David Bowie as Bella Lugosi's dead by Bauhaus blasts out of this. Um, uh, and that, for me, at the, uh, it, it, the, still the tender age of 21 was still a fact. I mean, I, I thought I was going to live off this anecdote forever. Um, and then that afternoon in another part of the nightclub where there were pool tables, he actually asked me for a light for his Marlborough. And for me, that was like, I thought I'd died That's and it. gone to heaven. Yeah. <laughs> Literally. Job done. And then th- three years later, I'm, I'm a journalist. In fact, it was very... They're, they're, um, I interviewed him seven times um, altogether, and it was very important for me that the only quotes, apart from two that in the book from him, are from interviews that I... Did not because I think they're particularly revealing, but I knew the the veracity of them. I knew what they meant, and it's also quite difficult going back through old old interviews and sort of taking things which work in context with the right tense that makes sense. But there were some very you know surprising sort of themes that came 
out of those. Mainly themes of insecurity, actually. Right. So, um, the, moving on... Well, Rick Wakeman did... The great Rick Wakeman. He says he's done 2,000 sessions, but of all the sessions he'd done, it was Bowie was the person he learnt the most from. So what, what would he have learnt from him? And he, he played the piano yeah. on Life on Mars. And the, Hunky Dory, I think, was it? The, the thing about um, Bowie is, I think lots of people think, oh, he got away with it. He was a great showman, he wore the funny clothes, he had the funny hair, charming, thin, good-looking, but he somehow got away with it. But actually, lots, I interviewed lots of musicians, and they're just full of respect for him. I mean, he wasn't a virtuoso, but he, he was a tremendous singer, always one take, hated doing two takes, a bit like Frank Sinatra. Really? Literally one take? Yeah. Backing vocals, knew where to pitch everything, knew how to join things up, great arranger, um, a proper, proper musician. And then he doesn't really get the cred for that. I think that lots of people think, oh, he sucked the blood out of this one, he sucked the blood out of that one. I mean, I tend to think of him like a great football manager. It's like, you know, you pick the right team for your project. So you get the right performance out of people. Yeah. yeah. But he did, he did very much you know, rely on a series of key musicians that he worked with. Well, he was smart. Mick Ronson, obviously. Carlos Alamán, Al Rogers, yeah, yeah, yeah. Mick Ronson, if you say. I mean, yeah. Um, but, but that's smart. Right? Yeah, yeah, you yeah. know, you're not going to pick dodos. No, no. You know. Sure, sure. Uh, we've included this picture to, to stand for. Uh, this is obviously a picture from the movie Almost Famous. To stand for David Bowie's considerable sexual appetite. It's, it's incredible. I mean, you have to expect that someone who's as experimental in, in their uh, artistic uh, uh, sphere uh, as he was would be experimental in their sex life. But uh, the sheer creativity. And diversity that is it's absolutely astonishing. He's and you tracked down quite a few of well, some groupies and some old girlfriends. Yeah, I mean there was you know, never forget that for a couple of years in the early seventies, David Bowie was a fully fledged rock star with the appetite and of a rock star, and suddenly this big candy shop, you know, this big sweet shop, and he ate everything. Um, yeah. But this is this refers to. Um, a woman called uh, Josette Caruso, who um, uh, she goes to um, she goes to see his gig. I think it's at Carnegie Hall. I think it's Car- anyway, New York. There's an after party. There's always an after party. Um, they have a connection. He says you can't do anything here because Angie's here, but come to Philadelphia. So she goes to Philadelphia. She doesn't go to the gig this time because she's seen the gig. She goes straight to the hotel. She's, a, she's in the hotel suite. And she describes this seduction of Bowie coming back from the concert, them drinking very good red wine, there's candles. It's all very... They talk it, about art and films yeah, and, you know... It's all very lovely. It, it is. And then there's a knock at the door. Another knock at the door. <laughs> yes, it's and Hello, it's not Roger David. Yeah. <laughs> and it's, it, it's Stewie George, who is his long-term bodyguard. And he says, David, um, I, think, I think you need to come and see this one. And Bowie goes out, and then about five minutes later, he comes back, even whiter than he was when he left, you know, because he was the white face and the red hair and the, and the jump, jump, jump um, suit. Um, really sh- shaken. And he sits down and she says, what's the matter? And what had just happened was someone had just come to the hotel suite with a recently deceased cadaver for him to have sex with. Now, this is odd, but 
I hope it's old. <laughs> Think back to 1973. Oh, yeah. Every rock star in North America Different times. Looked, like, looked like a member of the Eagles. Yeah. Double denim, long hair, cowboy yeah, boots, yeah. T-shirt, studded yeah. belt. Everybody looked like a member of Led Zeppelin or the Eagles, Deep Purple. Everybody looked exactly the same. And for people who... People had never seen anything like... We take it for granted now. There's a thousand images of David Bowie every day on Instagram. But he had orange hair. He had white face. He, he looked like a freak. He made these bizarre records. And people thought to themselves, what does he like to eat? What does he like to drink? What, how does he like to have sex? And so obviously some deranged fool thought that he might actually want to have sex with a dead body. And he didn't. <laughs> well, there is an enormous amount of uh, evidence of his sex life in the book, which is highly entertaining, I should say, and mind-boggling. The... Um this is a picture of David Bowie making young Americans. Station to station. Sorry. Okay. Is this Harry, Harry Maslin? Harry Maslin, who uh, produced Station to Station, as far as, I'm, as far as I was aware, had never been interviewed before, not for, well, not for 40 years anyway. And I interviewed him in a Masonic lodge in Santa Monica. Very nice man. Very nice man. And he described um, the recording process of Station to Station. And when Bowie would eventually come into the studio, and um, I'm no expert, but with sort of a really good pharmaceutical co cocaine in some sort of cylinder, and he would walk around the recording studio and he'd put a little pile on the mixing desk, he put a little pile on the guitar amp, he put a little pile in the vocal booth, he put piles of cocaine all over the studio. And Harry said, Why are you doing this? He says, So I don't have to walk. So he could be in any part of the, of the... He was so addicted to cocaine at the time, he needed it all the time, like 24 hours a day, that he had all these piles of cocaine all over the recording studio. I've never heard that before. Maybe you have. You're, you're veterans. I mean, no, no, it's, uh, to me. But also, I mean, at one point, he stays up for four consecutive days. You, know, you just can't believe he manages to record anything at all. It's well, this is, his, this is his period of, I'm going to be a really good drug addict. And, um, Did and this contribute was. to the heart attack? It must have done. Actually, I think the heart attacks, plural, were, were, were caused by smoking. I mean, he was a ferocious smoker. He smoked forever. Never stopped, is that right? Did he stop? No, he stopped. Right, yeah, he okay. stopped after he, um, he had the attacks. But, uh, yeah, he, he smoked. For, I mean, I don't think it helps if you take cocaine every five minutes for three years. But um, God, <laughs> Nine out of ten doctors recommend it. <laughs> <laughs> this is another thing about recording station to station in um, Cherokee Studios. He would come in and record station to station, which, along with Young Americans, possibly his best record ever. Um, and at the time, a quite deranged, old-sounding record, unlike Young Americans, but the, the, the sort of fusion of East and West... He would go in, record station to station. And then later on that day, Frank Sinatra would come in because he was recording a Christmas album. And they used to go to dinner together. <laughs> and this was complete news to me. But I spoke to... Bo did a backing vocal on one of the... He did, he's, yeah. Tracks, he? Yeah, he's on, yeah. I don't know which one is, but there's one or two songs on the Christmas album that he released at the end of 1977 with David Bowie's. And they would go off to Dan Tanner's or a local Indian, Italian restaurant. I mean, what a picture. 
How extraordinary. Yeah. Can you imagine David Bowie in his state and Frank Sinatra, him drinking whiskey and him with his pharmaceutical cocaine, sort of yeah. pushing <laughs> you know, carbonara around. I mean, it's just amazing. <laughs> How did the paparazzi miss that one? I know, exactly. Yeah. Ah, God's yeah. sake, that's the penny black of paparazzi pictures, <laughs> isn't it? It is, it is. That's absolutely extraordinary. Yeah. Um, you talk about Alexander McQueen, who you... you um, this is, um, this is in reference to Earthling, where he wears the Alexander McQueen Union Jack jacket, a Union jacket, um, which at the time, I think, may, maybe is not, you know, it's your, a favourite of many people here. I, I, I thought it was a masterpiece at the time, and now I think it's pretty shoddy. But um, this is to demonstrate Bowie's ego, because... Um, uh, and we were, we were talking about this earlier on, and um, I flew over to New York to have the the worst experience, which is listening to the record that the artist has just made with the artist, mm. just you and the artist. And we discussed how, what an awful thing. And they always play it really loudly, so yeah. it sounds amazing. Anyway, so he plays... To tap your toe furiously and look. He, he plays Earthling, and it's obviously it's front-loaded, so all the good songs are at the front. So he plays the first one, it's oh, amazing, brilliant. You know, second one, ah, oh, fantastic. Third one, yeah, brilliant. And then he's sort of running out of superlatives, running out of adjectives. And me, I mean, I was in my mid-thirties at the time. I should have known better, but I acted like such a fool. I actually you thought... told the truth. I actually thought yeah. in my conceited way that he actually really genuinely wanted my opinion. <laughs> yeah. So after track five or six, I'm going... Well, it's all right. <laughs> but it's not. The other one, brilliant. Yeah. But this one, and, of course, he was not interested. He just wanted me to say everything was a piece of genius. And that was... He was quite frosty after that, actually. Right. Yeah. Right, right. So do you think he knew that it wasn't that good? That's a really good question. I think that... I think when you're... When you're famous like that and you are used to people just never saying no, I think you get into a state where you're probably more confident about what you're doing than, than people who, who, who don't have that support system. Um, I think he was... Uh, I think in hindsight, he was a pretty good judge. But, I mean, he made some... I mean, the thing is, you have to remember that there were long periods of time in the 80s and the 90s when it was fantastically unfashionable to be A, David Bowie, or B, like David Bowie. Peter York was funny about this. In, in the 90s, when Bowie co-ops the YBAs and he's friends with Tracy and Damien Hurst and lots of people, he would often turn up... Peter York, he'd say, he'd get calls from an artist saying, David Bowie's in my studio and I can't get rid of him. <laughs> Because you didn't want his patronage, because there were periods when it wasn't cool to, to, to yeah. have anything yeah. to do with David Bowie. It's true, you forget that, because of the, the obituaries, you know, it all was written around the time of his death. It's yeah. as if it was just Fantastic one through line, everything a brilliant of success. Yeah. 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 yeah, the through Not line true. is a myth, yeah. isn't it? Of course yeah. it is. I mean, I mean, literally. I mean, Tin Machine. <laughs> I mean, even people in Tin Two Machine Tin hated Machine Tin Machine. <laughs> Three. <laughs> Three, live one. Oy vey. Oh, God. Oy vey, babe. Oh, it's some, some, yeah, it's anyway, like but yeah. uh, awful. In fact, I remember, I think I was at Arena at the time, sending Tony Parsons to interview Tin Machine in Dublin. And, Tin, and Bowie made this big thing as I've... This, I'm in a band, OK? 
I'm in a band. Everyone's as important as each other. And and Tony, so you had to interview the drummer. And Tony or... did this brilliant thing. He basically turned up, and he thought, right. And he interviewed everyone else. He interviewed the you know Mickey Mouse one, Mickey Mouse two, Mickey Mouse three, and he's in, he's, he's interviewing all these people. And Bowie's like, fury wants to get in on the action. And so finally, when it's he's saying, what do you think, David? He's like, the floodgates are opening. It's quote after quote after quote yeah. after quote. Yeah, yeah, yeah. shocking records. <laughs> Awful things. I got a picture here of, of the great David Hemmings, who uh, directed a film I haven't seen called Just a Gigolo, which I think is meant to be one of the worst films ever made. The only reason that David Bowie made this film was to meet Mar- Marlena Dietrich, and the only reason Marlena Dietrich made this film was to shape shoot David Bowie. They are in scenes together, but they're complete. They're filmed separately in different cities. Um, and uh, by all accounts, it's a real stinker. But the, but, but the point about this is that after this, um, for some reason, maybe before they'd seen the final edit of the film, Bowie hires Hemmings to do a, uh, a tour film of the, the um, I think, the, the Isola 2 tour, which I think is 78, I can't remember. Um, which apparently was so bad that it, he bought it immediately and it's, it remains in an archive and has never been seen by anybody. But my point is that this was a very extravagant, I think this was the black and white tour, very long, very austere. There was an interval. It was very sort of in your face. I mean, very cutting edge, difficult. It's where, you know, it's where um, Throbbing Gristle got all their ideas from. It was quite an intimidating show. And at the interval, what he used to do is he used to come in and apparently he used to stand like this. He used to stand like this and watch a television. And on the, on the television, there were, there were pre-recorded video cassettes of Coronation Street. <laughs> and this is how he sort of... It's his homesickness, isn't it? I don't think he was... I think this is his way of sort of... kind of like calming down for 20 minutes, still dressed in, all the, in, in the gear before going back out again. I think that's absolutely amazing. It's extraordinary. Isn't you? Yeah. Weird. Yeah. Certainly is. Certainly is. So, um, I think... Oh, this is an extraordinary period, that, which, again, in all the obituaries and everything that was written about him when he died, you know, I, I thought it was fascinating that, that the one bit we didn't know anything about was the mysterious time in New York, when he disappeared into New York and became, as you were saying earlier, like John Lennon. You know, he was almost invisible. And occasionally you'd see a picture of him by the paparazzi, often holding a Greek newspaper, which is a brilliant idea, wasn't it? So he, people yeah, think, is he that said, David Bowie? No, he can't be. He's no, he newspaper. said the easiest way not to be recognised in New York is to walk around in a cap carrying a Greek newspaper, and it, used, it, it kind of worked for him. But he was, he was... What did he do? So how did he occupy his time? Uh, he did normal things. I mean, I spoke to... I had a little bit to do with him during that, that time, but he wasn't engaged. He didn't want to, want to talk to people in the, in the industry, people in the press. He'd occasionally have dinner with kind of friends of... Of, um, of uh, you know who who were in the industry, but he did what John Lennon did. He he stayed at home. He he went to Dean and DeLuca. Uh, he brought up his daughter. He was a house husband. He poodled around and had, and I think was very very happy. I think that the domestic bliss that a, a man afforded him was incredibly satisfying. And um, were you surprised that he managed to produce two records without anybody knowing in the outside world that I was going th- I, on? I mean, I think everybody was. I think that the, I think the, I think 
the next day, I think, when he came back with um, Where Are We Now, that was it, was... it was done in such secrecy with just so much style and elegance. Uh, and it was good. I, I, I mean, talent is finite. We know that. But I think that if you have the amount of talent that David Bowie have, and you, and you, you probably don't stop writing songs for 10 years, even though you're not recording and you're not on tour... Um, and so it's possibly not a great surprise that when he goes in to make a record that there are some tremendous songs on it and that's a, that's a great record um, but the the last record, Black Star I think that I think it's too pat to say that this is his his sort of requiem this sort of he, that, that it was, this was the tail end it was all orchestrated, I'm going to die when their record's coming out, I mean that, that's awful but it's um the record was actually finished um, quite a few months before he died and the only reason it was held up was because of the videos and when they were making the videos I mean he, he knew he was going to die and that whole I think Jimmy King suggested it sort of why don't you get back into the wardrobe it'll be funny and they're in fits of laughter because they think it's got a funny thing to do um, but he knew he was dying at the time but um, it, it wasn't as orchestrated as, as everyone likes to to paint because it's a very sort of pat end to an extraordinary career to stage manage your own death but I don't, I don't think that's necessarily true Do you true. think the exhibition at the V&A was very important to him? I, I interviewed both the curators um, Jeff and Vicky and um, uh, I mean yes it was the, they describe it as a bit like when they, when they first went to New York if they, they were given these um, all the catalogues with all the archive stuff in. I mean, what was in the exhibition was a twentieth of what they have. And if they wanted to request something, it was a bit like it probably was it used to be in the British Library, or maybe in foils where you had to pay for something, <laughs> then fill out a chit, and a very convoluted process. They actually actually had to, had to handwrite what they wanted, and then it, it would be given to someone, and then. And they quite quickly realised that Bowie was in the next room. Yeah. Uh, it was like, he said it was like the Wizard of Oz. Right. You know, micromanaging everything to the nth degree and, all, and to the extent that the stuff that was used in the exhibition was basically... I mean, he supplied... He didn't micromanage it, but he basically supplied what they had. And he came to see it. And um, uh, one of them... I think Vicky, this was the only time she'd met him and Jeff was off on holiday uh, and says that it would have been, he personally would have been, it would have been too awful to meet him in case it wasn't everything that he wanted it to be. Um, but he saw it and just said to her, he said afterwards, just said, thank you. And that was it. Thank you. Dylan Jones. Thank you. This podcast was brought to you by The Word.